Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Warzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind-the-scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwerzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Sky McLean, CEO of Basecamp Resorts. Guys, if you are looking to learn how to build a hospitality company from the ground up, particularly one that focuses on experiential hospitality in really cool locations and resort style properties in mountain areas and remote areas, then you must listen to this episode with Sky. We talk about finding the right deals, how to balance the great opportunities with the ones that might not be that great, how she thinks about complex hospitality projects, how she finances her deals, the change in experiential travel, Sky's competitive edge, and how to know if you can make a property work. We even go into some of her earlier mistakes and what are some of the key things that she does not deviate from and how she's thinking about design and the future of Basecamp Resorts. Please enjoy my conversation today with Sky. Sky, I'm really excited to have this conversation today. And I thought a great place to start would be actually to talk about how you got started in hospitality, which from what I know and understand is a very non-traditional way. You were messing around Airbnbs a little bit and then kind of broke in. But I want to hear maybe even before you got into Airbnbs and how you did that, and then you can weave into how you started your company. Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. I went to Toronto from Calgary, where I was living successfully as a chocolate salesperson for Cadbury, flogging Easter eggs, and moved to Toronto to do an MBA in real estate development with no experience whatsoever in the business, just this like burning thing in my head. I want to be in real estate. I want to be a real estate. I don't want to be a realtor. I don't want to be a broker. I want to be a developer. So I go into this MBA thinking this is a great way to start essentially a life in real estate. And it was fantastic. Moved back to Calgary and then decided I want to start my own real estate development company, but had no experience. So I'm going to go work for some developers. So I worked for three developers in two years. So needless to say, none of them were a good fit mutually. And after being fired the third time, I said, you know what, to hell with this, I need to start my own business. While I was gainfully employed and making real people salaries and, you know, all that, I was able to secure two Airbnbs in a place called Canmore and 
run those kind of as my side hustle, which actually made me more money than my career in real estate, at which point I was like, okay, I have no job. I have these two Airbnbs. The bank that lent me the money thinks I'm still employed. So let's just like keep that going. And meanwhile, I was like, I want to buy a piece of land. I want to build a hotel. These two Airbnbs are so successful that if I can scale that, it's going to be great. So effectively, I had a one-bedroom and a two-bedroom condo in Canmore. And I built this pro forma that extrapolated, well, if I have one and two making X and Y times that by 32, it'll make, you know, X plus Y times whatever. So that was the essentially napkin numbers that I presented to potential investors and went out and started raising money because I had no money. I had no job, remember, and pulled together enough money to close on the land and get this hotel going. Long story short. So that was the first base camp resorts. The most interesting part of that journey for me was at the very beginning when I wanted to put a deposit on the piece of land and didn't have the $50,000 required by, you know, to get the land under contract and be conditional. I had purchased a car when I was gainfully employed and I went back to BMW where I bought this $38,000 car and I said, listen, I don't want this car anymore. It's got like 200 kilometers on it, which is like less than 200 miles. Can I please get a refund? And they're like, we don't refund cars. And I was like, well, I just need the money then. Can I finance it? And they're like, well, we don't finance used cars. And of course, I'm like, there's like, you know, 200 kilometers on it. But the sales guy says, but we can upgrade you and then finance the car. So I end up with a $75,000 car. Obviously, car payments I couldn't afford, but they cut the check back to me, the $38,000. And at the time, the loan was 1.9%. So I was like, this is a great deal. So I take my 1.9% money, and that's what was the deposit on the first piece of land I ever bought for Basecamp Resorts. Okay. There's a lot I want to unpack, but I want to go back to like the school part. Do you think there's anything you learned in business school that is directly applicable to what you're doing now? And is that something you'd advise yourself having looked back and seeing how things have panned out? If, was, is that how you do it again? Oh, 100%. I think business school taught me that most people have no idea what they want to do, have no idea how to get there, because we were all, you know, 25 to 30 on average, not everybody, but that was sort of the average age. And so many people were just like, I'm going to do an MBA, but I have no idea what I want to do. And I was like, ha, huh, I'm here and I know what I want to do. So that was like a great confidence booster. But that, but it's OK. You don't have to know what you want to do. You don't have to know how you're going to get there. You don't have to have the whole path like very few people do. You just have to do it. And so it was great to know that there were other people out there who were, you know, there were smart people in the MBA, like holy mackerel. But they still just like, didn't have the path. And that's okay. So that was like a great lesson. That's not like, you know, a school classroom lesson, but a life lesson that there's no right or wrong way of doing it. Just go do it. How do you still apply that today? Oh, all the time. You know, like just if we look right now at the portfolio, we have over 20 projects either completed, assets under management, condos we've sold, or things under development. I keep looking out the window because there's a big building right there that we're building, which is our next hotel. And if you sit around and you analyze and you analyze, you can always find something wrong with a deal, always, or find a hole or find a risk or find something. So at some point you just have to say, okay, I'm okay with these risks. And I'm just going to do it. So we do it every day. We do that. A lot of people with two Airbnbs probably would have brought a third and a fourth and a fifth. 
Why did you just realize, okay, after two, I think there's a bigger business plan here, but it's actually not Airbnb. It's more of a hotel. Because I love to travel and Airbnb to me was a dud. And I don't mean that to like offend the business or say it's a dud. Obviously, it's not a dud. It's an amazing business. But the flaw to me was you don't know what you're going to get. And when you get something crappy, nobody cares. You can phone Airbnb. You can phone the host. You can phone Santa Claus. No one cares. If the air conditioner is not working at two in the morning, there is nobody there nine times out of 10 to fix it. And I'm like, this is a huge fail. Like the customer service is is a wild card. Who wants to sign up? for a product where the customer service is a wild card. But when you go to, you know, a brand, whether it be a Fairmont or a Holiday Inn or whatever it may be, there is customer service, or at least you hope that there's customer service associated with that flag. So I wanted to create a flag to the Airbnb product. And that was why I said, I don't want to just buy all these condos and rent them out on Airbnb. I don't want to be part of a strata. I don't want someone telling me what to do. The consistent theme is I'm a control freak and I hate having people tell me what to do. So I wanted to have control of the building, control of the investors, control of the return, control of the brand, and that way be able to execute on something that is was in my head and now is really amazing. How did you solve for the lack of distribution. So Airbnb is great because it puts you on the map. It gives you a face. How did you counter that with your own strategy and your own brand in the early days? Well, we put our units on Airbnb and it was great. Like we were able to still utilize that platform and the other OTAs. So online travel agencies, for those who aren't familiar with the term, Expedia, Booking.com, we were on all the platforms. We were a hotel. And that was where the biggest misconception was because our first building looked like a multifamily apartment building. It looked like it's townhomes. We build stacked townhomes. So one level on the main floor and then a townhouse stacked above it. So everyone was like, well, no, that's a residential building. Well, no, it's actually commercial land, commercial taxes, proper insurance, exactly what Airbnb isn't. It's every Joe Schmo, Tom, Dick and Harry on thinking they're a hotel when they're not. They're not properly insured. And that was another flaw that I saw in that business that I wanted to to rein in. So now from there, we've grown to have multiple different buildings and different locations that are the townhomes. And we also have product that's regular hotel rooms as well, because there's still a good argument for regular hotel rooms also. What was your strategy in the early days? Like you said, you wanted to get away from every single other Airbnb. In those early days, like how were you distinguishing yourself? Was it new build product, service? What was it? It was customer service in an Airbnb, for lack of better terms, platform, a home away from home. You get to have the washer dryer, the multiple bedrooms, the multiple bathrooms, great location, but we're there for you 24-7 service. At first, we didn't actually think we needed a front desk, and that was our biggest mistake, like thinking we didn't have to have somebody there. We now have someone there 24-7. We have, you know, the 1-800 phone number. So all the things that a big brand has, but in this home away from home environment. What mistakes do you most often see your competitors make kind of in this hybrid Airbnb experiential micro resort kind of space? You know, I think the, the few of us that are doing this are, like, I have to say, doing a decent job from the outside. I'm not in their business, so I don't know if they've made, like, financial mistakes or something that I wouldn't know about. I just always fear for people who aren't doing what we're doing, which is properly zone land, proper insurance, proper all the things hotels are, and operating out of, like, residential buildings. I just don't know how that has, like, long-term 
success because municipalities and cities are like one at a time cracking down with more rules, cracking down with more fines. So how are people still renting out, you know, residential apartment buildings? That to me is a little bit questionable. I wouldn't do that. That's so risky. What were some of the mistakes you made on the first deal that you've since pivoted away from? Oh, gosh. That, well, like I said, the biggest one was not having a front desk. And we had this phone that was a cell phone. It was like the phone number was 1-800-blah-blah went to the cell phone. So we all called it like the hot potato bat phone because nobody wanted it. So we were like, who's taking the bat phone for the next six hours? And I remember being on my bike and the phone's ringing and ringing. And it's like, how do I check in? What do I do? And we're like in the bush somewhere biking. It was ridiculous. Like it was really bush league. Now we have a proper phone system, proper people answering the phone, proper customer service. I mean, we have 540 rooms. We have to. Another mistake, just trying to think. That that was the main one. That was like really our main mistake. Yeah. What services and amenities have you learned are important for people? Luckily, I have done a ton of traveling. And so I applied all of a lot of my personal experience to these properties so not that I know everything, but we definitely went for, you know, your quintessential rooftop hot tub, make sure everybody has everything in the kitchen they need. Like there's nothing worse than going to a home away from home product and the knives are dull. There's nothing worse than getting there and there's like, oh, occupancy eight, but there's four forks. So we've made sure that we've hit all the nails on the head and that we check that and that housekeeping has a list of everything they're checking for to make sure not only that people aren't like running away with our stuff, but that the next guest has everything that they need. To me, the guest experience is number one. We don't have to be a five-star hotel to offer five-star customer service. So it's all about the experience. It's all about how does the guest feel? How do they connect with the properties? How does this feel like their home, even though they're only there for average length of stay is only 2.7 nights? You'd think it'd be longer in this type of property, but it's not. So For me, it's all about that experience and that connection to the guest. I I always found it interesting. Four Seasons actually was founded in Canada where you're from. And I went out to go and meet the founder of Four Seasons, Isidore Sharp, and we stayed at the Four Seasons in Toronto. And it was not the nicest Four Seasons I'd ever been to, but it was their flagship at the time hotel. And one thing that was certain is the service was amazing. You know, it was five, six-star service. And now having traveled the world, stayed at Four Seasons, their service is always perfect, even if the hotel might be the might not be the best designed hotel in the area. I'm curious to know from you what you've learned over doing this multiple times is really important for service and experience today. Like what specifically are things that you really, really think about? Well, first and foremost, if you want to offer that level of service, which we do, it's hiring the right people. And it all comes, you know, for lack of better words, from the top. So it's hiring the right management team, which then hires the right, you know, supervisors who then hire the right staff and so on and so forth. So for us, it's it starts with hiring the right people, having the right training and having the right opportunities for learning. So if something's not going well, you know, that person might be trying their best and they just don't know, right? So just really training the staff on what we expect, what the customer expects, and really training people on how to read someone, read someone based on like, read the customer. Do they want you to talk to them more? Maybe they don't. Like we now are in food and beverage. So I'm always like, introduce them, say your name. If they want to chit chat about the local mountain, great. If they want you to not talk to them, great. You got to be able to read what the customer wants. Because at the end of the day, there's not one size fits all with customer service. It's about reading the guest. And if they're upset, we need to give them more time. What are they upset about? 
fix the problem. How do we fix the problem? So just taking the extra time to hire the right people has been our, or at least my mantra for the whole thing. What do you do to tell everyone what you just told me? Is is it like written down somewhere? Are you no, meeting every employee? It. I tend to repeat myself on like an hourly basis. And, I, and then when something's not right, I phone and then I phone again and then I phone again. And then eventually some of it sinks in. Okay, well, you're a control freak. So how have you figured out then how to scale? <laughs> because once I feel like everything's good, I'm comfortable. And for lack of better analogies, let the patients run the asylum, right? Like we have a great team. We have an amazing executive. And I and I know that they're making decisions that I would make and I feel comfortable with it. And then all of a sudden when I go and something's not quite right, they know I'm going to like call everyone. So it's like nobody wants that. People like try to keep me away sometimes. We skipped over it a little bit, but I want you to talk to us about what Basecamp looks like today because you're doing a lot of different things going in a couple of different directions, but it's all consistent with the core theme. Right. So Basecamp, you know, effectively, we're a real estate development company. A lot of people think we're just a hospitality company. We're a real estate development company with a significant portion of our business being hospitality. We still build industrial base, which people are like, why are you building industrial base? But it's like because we're a real estate company who has a large hospitality portfolio. So if we want to hone in on the hospitality portfolio side of it and call that, you know, right now Basecamp, Basecamp Resorts, our focus is on growing our five hospitality brands. So we have Basecamp Resorts, which is the home away from home, Basecamp Lodge, which is obviously a lodge, Lamp House Hotel, which is motel conversions, Northwinds Hotel, which is our entry-level product. We have two of those where we've acquired Days Inns and renovated them, deflagged them from Days Inn and made them Northwinds. And lastly, our newfound flagship product, which is Mountain House by Basecamp, where we're building a high-end hotel and Nordic Spa. And now we're entering into the Nordic Spa business. So Right before COVID, this is actually a good story. I had a mentor say, Sky, you're freaking all over the place. This is crazy. Like you want to get all these big investors. You want to build a business and you're doing 18 different things. Like stop it. Go and focus on one thing. Build the stack townhomes and only do that. So I'm like, great idea. Let's like, like finish all the stuff we have on the go. We're not going to leave a project like halfway through hanging or sell a framed up building that isn't complete or whatever. We're going to finish all that and we're going to build stack townhomes and that's it. We're going to be laser focused. You know, you read all these books about entrepreneurs need to be laser focused. So let's go do that. And then COVID hits, right? And what keeps the lights on? But all the opportunistic real estate deals. So I'm like, fuck laser focused. We're going to do the stack townhomes and everything else because there's a place for each of these divisions in our brand. Are we adding any more other than our Nordic spa business now? No, we're not. Are we doing more industrial base? No, not other than the ones that are in the locations where we need. And the reason I talk about the industrial base is everyone's like, this is such a diversion. But it's not because as a hospitality company, what do you need? You need a laundry facility. Where do you put a laundry facility? In the industrial area. We own our own industrial laundry facility. We have an office right above it. So everything that we've built, even though we built a 60,000 square foot complex and sold most of it and kept 10,000 feet, it was all for the business. So it does all have a focus at the end of the day, the outside world might not just might just not see it, right? I know what you're talking about. So we only have hospitality investments for the most part, maybe a little bit of multifamily on one project. But I've had this fantasy on doing investments in industrial because the complete opposite of hospitality. You know, it's triple net leases. It's I'm sorry for the industrial people out there, but frankly, it's piece of cake compared to hospitality. It's just 
a very different thing. The real estate skills are the same. How have you tried to balance in your life chasing easier opportunities that look easier on paper, given your expertise and your background in developing these complex hospitality projects? And maybe just answer for me, like, is it okay to look at this other stuff? Are you going to be doing any more industrial or are you really, really stopped? No, we have another piece of land to do some industrial base here at Revelstoke. But again, we're going to put our laundry there. We're going to move some a piece of our business there. But we have a two-acre site. Like, we can put a lot of bays on a two-acre site, especially in a small town where we don't need much more than that. It's real estate development. It's the same thing. It costs you X. You're going to make Y. Is there a delta? Does it make sense? And does it, you know, get you somewhere in your business? I don't really feel that you have to be doing only industrial, only retail, only hospitality. I disagree with that because like I said, I was almost on that, like just do one thing and then COVID hits and it's everything else that that kept us, you know, financially alive. Do you have a prized or a favorite brand that you are pushing harder than the others? Are they all kind of equally occupying your attention? They all equally occupy my attention, but in my next development fund, which I've creatively called uh, Development Fund 2, we're building all the stacked townhomes from the ground up. So really focusing on the home away from home product, which is the same as that that first project I told you about in Canmore. So we do have all these other brands. And what typically happens is we go to a new geographic area, we build our base camp resorts, which is the stacked townhomes. You get into the market, you start talking to people, and all of a sudden... Jack's selling a motel over there. So this is exactly what happened in Can. Or sorry, we're now we're in Revelstoke. Built a set of stacked townhomes, 32 of them, which is now smaller than what we do. We do larger projects now. And then there was another site. Someone called me. Oh, I got this other site. So now we've got this project here. Then, oh, the Days Inn's for sale. Let's go buy the Days Inn. And, oh, there's an industrial site. So you go from like doing one small project. And once you're in the business and in the community, you, you know, learn about more stuff, grow from there. So we're continuing to grow. We're now in seven different geographic areas in Western Canada and going from there. But yeah, I want to focus on all of our five brands that I mentioned earlier. How do you find good locations and what does a good location look like? Well, it starts with me saying, this is a great location. And then the people on my team who are very much more analytical and I like to say smarter. Well, why? What just is? There's good snow. There's good skiing. There's no hotels. Let's go buy land. And then the, you know, analysts and CFO and revenue managers get involved, which is good because at the beginning it was all based on like my knee jerk reaction of what I thought was great. And now, you know, we do proper analysis. What's the cost of land? Is it developable? How does the municipality work for entitlements and permits? Is the rev par there? Is the ADR there? What's the comp set? And so on and so forth. So there's actually like a very thorough due diligence process other than like, hey, this guy wants to buy this piece of land. I think it's a good idea. So... And I have been turned down like a few times I've thought something was a great location, but then uh, a revenue team will be like, mm, no, the comp competition's not doing good revenues, just be a dud. And so on, we go to the next thing. Everyone post-COVID is talking about experiential travel. And my personal view is that it's a non-negotiable for people. They'll cut other things before they'll cut travel. How do you think in your business, you've seen things change just over the past three years? And where do you think things are going into the next five years? 
Well, it's interesting because I always say that we're finally back to where we were in 2019, which is true. We're back to exactly where we left off, maybe a little bit higher, but not much. It's just a different customer, whereas before COVID, it was so international. It was so everyone came from Europe, from Asia, from the States. And of course, international travels back. But now there's just so many more locals. So to your point, people who are just, you know, maybe previously were going to Mexico or going to I don't know where they were going are like, we're going to go to the mountains for the weekend. We don't need we're doing more. So they're doing like more trips, but less distance is what we're seeing. And people, to your point, who are like, we don't care. We'll pay $700 a night for a hotel. We don't care. We're doing it. Put on the credit card. Don't care if our mortgages just doubled because rates just went up. Like, people just want to have those experiences. And everyone kept saying, it's revenge travel. It's revenge travel. It's going to end, right? And and for us, it hasn't. I have talked to a few people for who they've seen like that dip. So I think it is definitely based on, are you in a great geographic area? Is there a resort? Is there skiing? Is there hiking? So there's other factors, but I really, I really hope that people keep traveling, obviously, but also because I think it's really good for, for people to get out and try something different. So I want to go back to how you're capitalizing these deals. The first one was capitalized with the BMW or partially. So like from that first deal, Till now, how have you looked at the equity in your business and figuring out how to raise enough capital to fuel your development ambitions? Yeah, I mean, this is always the constant struggle because every time I have money, I buy something and then I'm like, oh, got to buy something else. Got to find the money. Got to buy something else. Got to find the money. So that's part of, you know, the, the deal junkie problem, I suppose. So the first one, like you said, was the car. And then, you know, hey, all my friends, do you have 50 grand? Do you have 100 grand? Let's build a hotel. It's going to be great. Here's a one page pro forma. Life is good. And so it started off with like friends and family and my husband, who at the time wasn't my husband. We had just met actually, and he decided to build a hotel with me, which is a whole nother story. But yeah, so it was friends and family. Then it grew from friends and family to friends and family and their associates. So, you know, the spider web grew. And then we started getting connected to a couple family offices, high net worth individuals. So then it became a combination of, you know, the, the initial kind of 100 to 200 grand retail investors combined with some higher net worth people. And it's just grown from there. Right now, we're looking at some like definitely higher, higher net worth people who can cut checks from like five to 10 million that are either a private equity company, a family office. But we still want to have the same investors from the beginning. So if like one of our original investors is like, listen, I got a check for 150 grand. Done. Yeah, let's put it in the development LP too. Life is good. We're not like we're not solely taking the larger players. We're we're a hybrid. Are all your deals standalone syndications or have you kind of you have fund two now is fund one a mix of early investments? Is it a few investments and others are standalone? How does that all break down? Yeah. So at the very beginning, it was all standalone. So each hotel was its own limited partnership with its own unique group of investors. Of course, some investors were in all of them. Some were in some of them. And during COVID, we had one hotel do worse than the others. I mean, they were all in the shits, right? We were all going, you know, up the creek with no paddle. But yeah, one was worse than the others. And, and that's when I had this like aha moment where I was like, this is flawed. I have all these investors and and one guy or gal might do great while the other doesn't like that's bullshit. So that's when I was like, I'm going to create a fund and all of the operating assets are going to go into a fund. 
which is, you know, it's it's still a limited partnership. It's effectively a private REIT, but I have what's called the SkyWest Investment Fund. And that's where all of the operating hotels got appraised and everyone was able to roll up into this master fund, which conveniently in Canada is a tax deferred episode. So everybody had X. So let's say you put 100 grand into the first hotel and, you know, you got appraised and your 100 grand is now 300 grand. You get $300,000 worth of units in the master fund. So we had an event this January 1st of 2023 that all happened. Everybody's in the fund. So that's where all the stabilized assets are. Then we have Dev Fund 1, and it's almost complete, at which point all those hotels will roll up into the master fund. Then we have Dev Fund 2, which is just starting. But again, in 2026, 2027, when those are all done and operating, they will roll into the fund. With the whole plan to have the fund be a billion dollars of assets under management in the next five years. There you go. I love it. Okay, so you have a billion dollar AUM goal. Are people, well, let me ask this. Did any, did some investors push back? Like, were some like, hey, I invested in asset A, I only want to be in asset A, and I don't care about the guys in asset C that we're now going to be commingled with? No, no, because at that point, anybody who was like, ah, was really small. And I said, if you don't want to come, I'm happy to buy you out. Or like a couple of other people were on the sidelines to buy people out. And we really want to have an investor base that wants to grow with us. And actually, only one person ended up getting bought out out of 30. And that's because he ended up becoming a developer and wanted to do his own deal. So like, fine, fair. And then another guy got bought out because he left Canada. And in the rules, you have to either have a Canadian corp or be a Canadian citizen or have some Canadian, you know, connection, which for Americans is no big deal. Might I add, we have lots of Americans. They just incorporate a company in Alberta and off they go. Same way as I would go incorporate a company down there if I were to do deals down there. So long story short, everybody was really happy. They loved the idea because it de-risks the portfolio for them. It's it's really interesting, actually. And all of your investments are very highly content, like somewhat similar. They're in similar locations. It's an unbelievable strategy. How, how did you think about your promote or carried interest in the context of merging everything together? So I had different promotes in all of the different deals. Like I said, there were, you know, all these different hotels and I just turned the like I turned the promote into LP units. So I transferred it, crystallized it into ownership. And then the new promote is based on the value at the time of roll in to when we sell in 10 years. So the promote, it's not like double dipping. It's like a like one of them is now dead effectively. And then the new one just starts. And what is the new, like, what's the structure of the new one? How do you do it? And how are you doing it for the new fund? For the new fund, it's 80-20 at time of sale. So basically, uh, because I already took my promote, turned that into ownership, everybody's owners and, and distributable cash is distributed, obviously, based on your percentage ownership in the fund. Then if in X number of years we sell, it's everybody gets obviously their capital back and then 80-20. I, I think that's an amazing structure. I'm surprised I haven't heard more people doing that here in the States. You know, you hear about people taking larger portfolios, private that were once public or maybe turning into a non-traded REIT, but I haven't heard of many kind of the syndicator crowd do it. And I think it's a great strategy. I'm going to look into I'd be it. curious to know if that, and you could answer this, maybe not right now, but uh, after you investigate, 
if that roll-up is tax-deferred in the States. I don't see why it wouldn't be if it is up here. Like, you guys are usually a little bit more advanced than we are. But if that roll-up was a tax event, I couldn't have sold the deal. There's no way. A hundred percent. I think that's key. I mean, there's an upreach concept here in the States. That's how all these REITs got started in the 90s. And I got to think the tax component is associated with that. It's also just from a, a cost standpoint, you know, more efficient because in each of our deals, we obviously have fees that we build to the deal, but there's other costs. There's like accounting fees, there's tax fees, there's legal fees. And if you have one venture, you can certainly economize a lot of those costs with multiple properties. It's, it's pretty interesting. How are you trying to raise capital now for the development fund too in a time where I think development's tough, interest rates are high. What's your strategy? What's the thesis? It's, you know, no different than it ever was. Like, hey, who's who's deploying equity? Who's got money? So back to the original investors, we have a few events coming up right now. We've sold a bunch of condos at a project and there's about $7 million going back to investors with great returns and all of that. So of course, strategy one is go back to the people who know, who know you, who've done deals, who've made money. Strategy two, like I said earlier, is bringing in these larger private equity companies, family offices, because development fund two is 31 million Canadian dollars that we need to do these three projects. So that's 35% equity, 60, 65% debt. We'll be able to get a 65% loan to cost to build them, which is what we're getting at all our projects right now. And the pro forma works. It's just, it's basic, right? It's like what I said earlier. If it costs X, you make Y. Is there a delta that's material enough for people to invest in? And there is. So it's telling the story, which now is so much better because at the beginning with the BMW, it was like, hey, we're going to make a 27% IRR. Well, have you done it before? No. Have you been a developer before? No. Can you guarantee a loan? No. Do you have any? Do you have a house? No. Like, the story was like really hard. Whereas now it's like, okay, we've now done this 15 times. We have a proven track record. We've always been in line with the banks. We've always, you know, done all these things correctly. We've made people money. We've got buildings you can touch, see, walk through. We've got a presence, you know, on Instagram. We've done a ton of philanthropy. Like all the th- the stories, like really good now, if I may say. Whereas before, it was just kind of like, hey, I'm living in the pickup truck. Let's build a hotel. So, what's your competitive edge, and how do you articulate that to people? Like if they're looking at you and some other developers doing some experiential stuff. What's special about you guys? I feel like we're just doing it a little bit differently. And I feel like our competitive edge is our team. We're we're boots on the ground. We're not like in some fancy office in New York or where everybody's shacked up. Like we're living in these communities. We're building in these communities. We're part of the community. We're entrenched in the business. And it's not just me, it's all of us. We're all part of this. And I think that's what's really unique. And that's what's attracted local investors. And it's unique product. Like now, like I said before, if you go and walk through one of our hotels, it's fantastic. We've got all the things you want, whether you're a single person or a group of 20. In all the brands, are there like defining characteristics that if I walk through the hotel, I'll know I'm in a base camp property. And what are those? Yeah, I would say that that's our architectural selections as well as our design selections. And you would even be able to further not just know you're in a base camp, but know which one of our sub brands you're in. It's very clear. It's going to take a while to, you know, educate everyone on the five brands and what each one does. That takes time, right? But if you look at some of the big flags, they've got like 
27 million sub brands. So I couldn't even name them. So we're 30. Yeah. I mean, Marriott has, I think, more than 30 now. It's mm-hmm. it's tough to keep up with. It is tough. Whereas we're going to stick to five plus. Have you, well, speaking of that, have you analyzed doing a soft brand with a major brand to get a bigger distribution system? Not with enough analysis to give you a you know material answer. So I would say no. So it's working fine doing it yourself, going on OTAs, creating your own website. How has social media and photography and influencers changed the business since you've been in it? Oh, I think it's great. We utilize all of that. And I think, you know, I'm not a technology person, so I am not the right person to like speak to the ins and outs of it. But according to the team, you know, it's fantastic. Instagram's great. We get bookings from it. And now with all the technology, we can track where everybody comes from and where what they clicked and where they are. And did they go to Mars and come back? And, you know, you know everything about everything. So it's kind of creepy, but really good. And at the end of the days, we're all at the mercy of the OTAs. You know, even the big brands get you know, bookings from the OTAs. And so we're just trying to educate people, you know, book direct, it's great if you come direct and we're developing a points program or a you know frequent traveler program. It's not out yet, but I feel like once we come up with that and we have our app that we're developing, it's all coming. And so we don't want to partner with a big brand. We want to be a big brand. It just takes time. You're doing it all yourself. It's amazing. Yeah. I, mean, I told you I'm a control freak. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I see it. I want to understand the the process. So if you find a motel how do you know that you can make it one of your properties? Because there's a lot of these like crappy old motels, particularly in ski towns. They might be in good locations. They were like, feel like they were built in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and they are just so uninspired. How do you know that you can do something with it? It's just sort of like a gut feeling, which is like the wrong answer if you're an analyst or, you know, somewhat analytical. But it's, it's, Basically, I walk through it and I just know it's like, I know, like if you if you're married, you just sort of knew you got married. I don't know. There's not like a recipe. It's not like, okay, tick all these boxes. Well, there's some boxes, of course, like, you know, of course we go through and we do a geotech and we do a phase one and we do a building inspection report. Like we do the things that you need to do as a proper due diligence. But before we do any of that and spend any money, I'll go through. Yes. No. Okay. Yes. This works because it's got is it the right room count? Is it the right location? Do we have enough parking? So all the things you can see, touch, feel that I can analyze in, you know, 25 seconds now. Then we go into the deeper due diligence and then if it all checks out and we have a partner, of course, we need money, we do the deal. If it doesn't, then we don't. So we have walked from some deals, which is always, you know, hard as a developer and a deal junkie, but all the ones we've left in the dust have been for good reasons. How have you navigated the balance between spending money on things that the guests will see and then spending money on things that the guests won't see, but maybe you feel like you have to fix it. I know we bought a hotel in 2018. We spent basically as much money renovating the hotel as we did buying it. A lot of it went into stuff that the guests will never see, but now we have a great building that will last. How have you figured out to find that balance in renovation projects? Well, it just depends on the building, right? It depends on what's what's in the bones, what's in the walls. You always end up finding something that you didn't see, even if you do all the reports under the sun and have every engineer, it's just, just going to be something. So it's important to have a contingency. And, and we 
pride ourselves on having great quality buildings. So we go, we dig deep and we bite the bullet because it's typically a building that we know we want to have last. And we just have to make a budget and plan according to having something come up that we didn't know was there. So we allocate a certain amount of money to that, depending on the building size. And then from there, we we do the cosmetic stuff. How important is food and beverage now in the projects that you're doing? In the larger hotels, such as Mountain House Hotel and Spa, it's very important. I stayed away from it as long as I possibly could because it's not my expertise and I like to eat and drink. I don't want to serve it. But now we do have our first food and beverage. It's called Rhythm and Howl. It's at our Mountain House Hotel and Spa in Canmore. And it's been a challenge. Like, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, we opened a restaurant. And it was a home run. We opened a restaurant and it's been like a pain in my ass. And we're getting there. But I used to, when I was in uh, in the NBA, actually, I served tables and I was a bartender and I did all these things. So to me, I was like, why is this so complicated? Like, why can't we just dim the lights? Why can't we just so on and so forth, right? Like, let's get our shit together. Why can't the service just say their name? Like, go to the table and introduce yourself. Like, Jesus Christ, this is common knowledge. And, but people are like, nah. And all these young people are deer in headlights and no one knows how to do this and I can't do that and it's too hard. And oh, it's been like way harder than hotels, way harder. What have you learned in trying to figure it out? I'm not going to do it at any property unless it's absolutely necessary. And at a high end hotel and spa, it's necessary. You need multiple food and beverage outlets combined with we're building a conference center. So if you have a conference center, obviously you need food. So we're going to do it and we're going to focus on it and we're going to focus on it on our larger properties and stay the heck away from it at our smaller properties. So we actually have one property where there's a restaurant. We leased it out. Best idea ever. Rent it out. Let someone else deal with it. So wherever we can, we're going to lease them out to people who know more than I do about food and beverage and where it has to be in-house because long story short, we bought an old Holiday Inn and it was all connected. Like there was no way to lease it out. The business was all too entrenched and we want to have in-room dining and how do you lease out in-room dining? And it was just getting too murky, but wherever we can, it's someone else can do it. Can we do a little breakdown on this Holiday Inn deal? Because it sounds like an interesting one with a good story. How did this thing come about? Like what were the numbers involved? What's the status of it now? How is it all working? Yeah, you bet. So it's a great deal because it started off, someone built it. It was a four points by Sheridan. Then he sold it to someone else who sold it to someone else who ended up reflagging it to Holiday Inn. Through someone I know, I got wind that the guy, let's call him well, his real name, Mike, wanted to sell, wanted to sell it. And Mike was this guy who lived out of town, owned the building, hired a hotel manager to run it, hired a flag to, you know, be the flag. You're very typical, quintessential hotel model. And the thing, in my opinion, went to shit. It's on three point eight acres of land in Canwar where land is trading at, you know, six to eight million dollars an acre. So right away you're at, you know, a very expensive piece of dirt. The hotel is down the drain. I wouldn't have stayed there. It was gross. And I went through and I said, this is a no-brainer. It's 60,000 square feet with a park with a parkade and they're selling it for land value for $24 million. Because, you know, four acres at six million. I think I did that right. It's 24 million. So so that was my basic analysis of the situation. Then, like I said earlier, I brought in the team. I'm like, okay, someone's got to go see about the building, do the analysis. It's 99 rooms. Can we make money? There's a restaurant. And there's all this extra land, right? Of course, there's the parking lot and the parkade. The parkade doesn't matter, but the parking lot took up space. But there's an acre and a half of undeveloped land 
what do we do? So we went through all these different iterations of what if we do employee housing? What if we do some more stacked townhome hotel? And then I went there and I said, we got to do spa. This is crazy. The spa business is so good. And, and of course, that's based on absolutely nothing of me saying, let's do a spa. So then we hire a spa consultant. We go through the whole thing. Should we do a spa? Does it make an economic sense? What are the EBITDA margins? Et cetera, et cetera. So hundreds of thousands of dollars of reports and, you know, specialists later, we decided to do the deal. Luckily, the Holiday Inn franchise agreement expired in January. We closed in January. We shut the whole building down. We renovated in six months at 60,000 square feet. It was insane. We actually filmed a TV show. So we're making what's called, I don't even know what the title is, but we made a TV show. We're trying to sell it to a network as we speak. So hopefully like Netflix or someone like that picks it up because it's so crazy. Like the whole thing was insane and everything that you need for a good TV show happened. Like there was a flood, there was a fire, there was a this, and it was all like not dramatized like it it happened that so, sounds like a um, normal hotel renovation exactly and i can't believe that that one of the big networks doesn't have a really good series on this like i've watched some of the other hotel makeover shows and renovations and island of brian or whatever they're all called nothing bad against them but they don't depict what really happens and we go into the details like in our tv show we go in you know meet the investors go into the financing and all that so that but but simplify it so that every, you know, Tom, Dick and Harry can appreciate, you know, what we have to offer as a developer. So I'm, I'm really excited about the TV show. So the Holiday Inn is our latest and most interesting deal because it's big. You know, the exit valuation is $150 million. So it's a large valuation. It was a big purchase to begin with. We started at $24 million. We're adding a spa. We're adding a conference center. We're adding 40 rooms. We renovated 100 rooms. So and on and on and on it goes. But it's a really good deal. It's projected IRR of 27%. So it's a good deal. Wow. Okay. So how did you renovate? <laughs> that was like six, a lot. In that one was a lot. Breath, you went from 24 but... million to 150 million. I'm trying to like add up in my head. That would be a great return. That would be an epic return. So how did you like walk me through the steps that you went through on the planning side to get this renovation done in six months? Because A, you're in a mountain town. I got to imagine that's challenging in itself. Like, did you have everything staged, ready to go? When do you bring in designers? Like, what's the whole story? It was a disaster. We weren't organized. We brought in the designers too late. The designers were disorganized. They were too slow. Trades were on site complaining. Like, the plumber was like, oh, you want me to install a sink? Well, you haven't even spec the sink, you idiot. So then we're running around specking sinks. Like, designers are running the store buying lights because our lights got held up in China and we couldn't get them on time. Like you name it. it, it was so it was so good. It was so good that if this TV show doesn't sell, I'm going to be so disappointed. But yeah, no, it, like I can't sit here and be like, we had a proper IFC package two months before and everything was great. No, it was a complete shit show because we only went firm on the deal October 23rd, closed January 10th. So we, we were only firm for under two months. We had to get the financing, had to get a lender on side, had to raise $8 million to close. And then another... The whole the total raise was twenty two million dollars. We just finished it. Oh my gosh! That like that then took all of our energy away from development fund two to Mountain House Hotel and Spa. So the deal came out of nowhere, and this is actually a good story. So last July, so I guess what is it, fourteen or sixteen months ago? I'm I'm at I'm on holiday. I'm standing at the side of the lake, and the seller Mike, who we've been talking, we've been figuring this out. We're going to do this deal. Calls me. He says I got another offer. So shit are off the pot. Cut me a check for 250 grand non-refundable or I'm selling the hotel to someone else. And at this point, I'd put in like 42% of my due diligence. I was kind of committed. I wasn't sure. Do we have the team? 
And I was just like, fuck it. Here's your 250 grand. We're going to do the deal. And so, of course, again, if you were super analytical or you had a company with strong due diligence or you had an advisory or a board of directors or a process, like you wouldn't be able to do that. So I did it. And it's a really good deal. How did you set yourself up to come into this kind of flow? Because everyone gets these marketing emails from brokers. Everyone looks at them. But the best deals, I think, come off market, knowing a market through random people. Like, How have you figured out how to set that up? Or how has your reputation enabled you to get these kinds of deals? Well, it's exactly what you just said. It's just being in a market and, and knowing people. And I, we've done so many deals. Like based on, you know, Western Canada hotel groups, I think we're like the most active buying, renovating, building from the, the ground up, like the amount of projects we've done in the last five years. So people know like, oh, you want to sell something called Sky? She's a junkie. She'll probably buy it. So I think there's a lot of that because I'd say all of our deals have been off market, really. You know, when something comes with a fancy package, I'm like, oh, it's too expensive. Uh, forget it, <laughs> which is probably bad. I shouldn't do that. I should really look at it more clearly. But I like kind of the hustle of it. And I'm really competitive. So I'm like, oh, I want to find something before someone else does. I get mad when someone like passes me on the mountain bike. I have to catch them. It's really sick. I think that's your competitive edge, by the way. Off market deals. Oh. Well, maybe. <laughs> I haven't seen you mountain bike. It could be, but yeah, off-market deals, that's unique that other people don't have. And that's definitely should be a part of your development fund to pitch deck. And you should be talking to people about that. But it's also, it's actually off-market deals combined with deals that have been for sale forever that everyone's written off because they think there's something wrong with them. So over there, the one I keep looking at, there was a for sale sign on that piece of land for, I think, four years, like a big ass for sale, Royal LePage. Oh my gosh, the rumors. I heard there was a dinosaur buried there. I heard there was environmental issues. I heard there was, I don't even know, ghosts. I've heard it all. And and so I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to tie it up because no one else has, which is crazy. This is the last large piece of land downtown Revelstoke, like smack downtown. $1.8 million. I'm going to tie it up with whatever deposit I could scrounge up. I didn't have any more cars to finance, so I had to find it in the business. And, and we'll see what happens. So, of course, we do a phase one. We do all the things. There's no dinosaur. There's no environmental issues. There's no nothing. And after we closed on the site and it went public, Basecamp's bought this site, yada, yada, which was in 2019, I had about five phone calls from locals saying, oh, I was looking at that deal. I was going to do it. I have One guy even had plans. I'm like, who goes and spends money on plans and doesn't even have the site tied up? And that's my biggest piece of advice to people. Just tie up the site. The deposit's refundable. If you can't get it together, at least you're in control of the deal. Don't spend all this time and money and you don't even have the deal under contract. And so that's probably also how I end up in so many deals because I just tie them up with nothing other than you know some money. But what I mean is I haven't spent all this time. I haven't run a pro form. I haven't done anything. I just like it. And then I go into it. So, And then usually I make it work. So it's, it's bad. Well, talk about that some more. Like what's your strategy on whether it's an existing hotel or a piece of land? Like are there scrappy techniques that you're doing that others are just totally oblivious to that if they were doing, they'd be getting these deals too? Like what are the secrets? Like is it just putting up a soft deposit, doing some work? Like what are some of the other ways you've been able to get deals done? It's a pure gut instinct. I can't, I can't teach it. It's like, it's just a feeling, right? It's like, I just feel like this is a good deal. Let's go do it. 
And it's like I said earlier, not having analysis paralysis. And it's not being afraid to pick up the phone. Like I'm a salesperson at heart. I'm competitive. I'm scrappy, like you said, but not in the unethical sense, just in the like aggressive sense. And I'm not scared to ask somebody something. I'm not scared to call someone just because they're a billionaire. I'm not scared of anything, really. And I used to be. So I can't like claim that I've always been this way. I used to be so shy and like, oh, God, what if I phone and they hate me? Like, what if this? What if I piss someone off? Like, what if I go to the city and they don't want to give me a permit? What if, what if, what if, right? And then I like got to a point where I started abiding by like, if you never ask, the answer will always be no. And I was like, well, I can either ask or I can sit here and fester in my cesspool of shit. So I'm going to start asking. And that's kind of how I got going. I want to talk about design because that's something that I've recognized in all of your properties. And it's unique. It's important. I think a lot of hotel developers and owners today for financial reasons or because they just don't have taste and they happen to have fallen into hotels design has gotten very follow the leader, but they're following trends from five, 10 years ago. Are there common themes and ways that you approach designing a hotel? Oh, absolutely. You know, we're in mountain towns. So we go with like, of course, a mountain vibe, wood accents. Like there's certain things that just go when you're in a mountain town and that's, that's a given, but we try to do it differently. So for the exterior of the building, it's, you know, what is the right color? What's the right tone? What's the right amount of wood? What's the right window size? That kind of stuff. Then you enter into the interior. And for us, it's really important to pick materials that have, you know, longevity. So high quality, solid surfaces. So I'm not going to put in a shitty laminate countertop. I want to put in, you know, a stone. Not only is it more beautiful, but it's going to last way longer. So it's a combination. We have designers who are, you know, really good. We have an in-house designer now, actually, which is great. But I'm neurotic about it's got to feel clean, modern, fresh, mountain. And then we go as far as to use local artists. So when we put a painting on the wall, it's not some stock bullshit out of China. It's like a local artist who's able to create an original and then duplicate that in print. So of course, we can't afford, you know, 200 originals, but we can get the originals. So actually our last building in Banff, we we commissioned all the originals. I went around the office and I said, if you were an animal, what would be your spirit animal? And everybody said, I'm a fox, I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm an owl. So everybody got a painting in their office that's original. And then we duplicated that in our hotel in Banff. So that's the story about Banff. So we always do something really unique and local and fun. And we'll do that forever. What kind of amenities are really important in turning out to be non-negotiables to you, whether it's like Nordic spa, is it like a sauna? Is it a cold plunge? Is it a great piece of technology? What, what is kind of becoming really important these days in everything that you're doing? Well, it's funny because the two things that are critical are the two things we did on number one and we haven't deviated, which is a hot tub. Usually it's elevated. So on the roof or on like a platform or on a second floor. So elevated hot tub makes for great pictures and great experiences. And the second one is what we uh, call the keyless uh, check-in. It's a company called Remote Locks. We buy these locks. There's technology behind it. Again, I have no idea how it works, but I know it's the last four digits of your phone number when you book. So if the last four digits of your phone number is 1234 and you're in unit 201, you go to unit 201 at 4 p.m., 1234 works. 
at 11 a.m. on checkout. It stops working and you can't forget it and call me and ask me what the hell is my code because it's the last four digits of your phone number if you forget you're an idiot. So we never have to get that annoying call. We never have to track down keys. I'm locked out in my room. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so that was my big push at the beginning was to have this like, let's, you know, eliminate some of the customer service pain in the ass and have that. We also have hot tub where there's towels there. So there's no, where's my towel? So just like some of the common, you know, moaning and groaning we've eliminated. Can you talk us through what a Nordic spa is and what you're building? Yes, it's amazing in North America that people don't know what Nordic spas are. My, this another is exactly friend what of mine just did biz- one, actually. Oh, where? In Arizona, at in Flagstaff. I need to look it up. Flagstaff, yeah. Nordic Flagstaff. Yeah, it's up called the something motor lodge. I'll send it to you after. John he did Grossman. his own or he did it with like a spa company? He's so good. He probably did it on his own. You should introduce us. I'd be. I'd I will. Is John Grossman? He's also YPO friend. He was actually, I don't know, number one or two on the pod, and he bought this motel, like very similar story to you. He they have other hotels, but he added in a Nordic spa, and it became this really well-known thing. Yeah. So that's the thing is that it's like, I didn't, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm like the Nordic spa expert. I'm not. I didn't know what it was. There's a company in Alberta who opened one. It's about half an hour from Canmore. And it's just been so busy and such a success. And that's how, you know, as an Albertan, I got to know the business. Then you look at Nordic spas in Quebec, which is one of the Canadian provinces. They have 62. We have one. And then you go and you go as further and Nordic spas in Europe. Holy shit, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. And so it's the, the basics is essentially you, you know, revive yourself and rejuvenate it, whatever you want to call it by doing hot, cold, rest, repeat. So whether it's like go into a steam room, a sauna, then a cold plunge, then you go into a rest area, then you repeat. That's like the very basis of it. There's obviously way more to it. And people who are experts would be able to tell you what it does to your blood and your this and your that and all the rest of it. But for me, I always just love that experience. It's great. Anyone who's an athlete has done hot, cold, hot, cold and knows it's great for your sore muscles or whatever. So that's been around for like all of time. But if you can take that like rejuvenating experience, wellness, all of that and combine it with social is where I'm like, that would be so great. And so our spas are not the quiet kind. We're not running around telling people to shut up. We're running around saying like, go there with your friends, have a great time, have a cocktail and feel good. You know, obviously you're like, have the opportunity to go have a massage or be in a quiet area. But the whole thing isn't this like, you know, quiet thing. It's like, it's very important that people are having a good time. So we're building one right now. And then we have a couple of sites for more. And I'm just really jazzed about the business. And I assume it's not just for hotel guests. You're going to allow outside people to come and this becomes a good marketing advertising tool for the hotel. Is that right? Exactly. Or well, we guests? have some that are just for hotel guests. And like, for example, in Canmore, we're building one where it's not just for hotel guests of that hotel. It's for hotel guests of Basecamp because we have hundreds and hundreds of rooms. So we really want to cater to our clients and not the walk-in demographic. But we have other locations where it'll be the walk-in demographic. So it just depends. Part of the allure of Airbnb is, well, I guess on the demand side, it's for families or groups traveling together that want more rooms and they want to be together. And hotels traditionally are one bedroom rooms unless you want a suite and those are going to be few and far between and a lot more expensive. What was your early insight around these kind of two to three bedroom hotel rooms that 
were purpose-built for that size and essentially look like a townhouse. Yeah, it was it was all based on me, really. Like I selfishly love traveling. I love skiing. I love going with my friends and I hated sharing a bed in a bedroom. I was like, I don't want to share a bedroom. Like this is crazy. But we want to have a kitchen. We want to have shared experiences. We want to sit in the living room. And a lot of it was because I do a lot of like, which are now um, co-ed sports, but at the time, like mountain biking and skiing 15 years ago, it was like very male dominated. So I'd be traveling with all these dudes. And like another reason why I'm like, I want my own bedroom, but I want to hang out with like my buddies. And so we would always be trying to find these places that didn't exist. And that was like kind of the start of the, this needs to be a thing. This needs to be a brand. Why are there no places to stay? What, who wants to stay with two queen beds in a bathroom? Like I've spent so many nights, two queen beds in a bathroom, with like a buddy of mine who like were just buddies and it's just awkward. It's like, this is stupid. I don't want to do this anymore. So there was a, you know, personal experience combined with, I have, I have kids now, but at the time I didn't have kids, but you don't want to go and like, you know, your kids are lying there sleeping and you're sitting there. You can't watch TV. You can't talk. They're sleeping. You don't want to wake them up. Like that's terrible. They have their own space and you can have your own space as a parent. It's great. So it really uh, appeals to anyone. And in our projects. We have one bedroom and studio units. So if you're just a single person or a couple, we have something for those people as well. So that's, and then some, a lot of ours interconnect. So you can have up to a six, a 12 bedroom unit, which is what makes us even more unique. You don't have to go to, you know, some random house over there that's not even supposed to be on Airbnb and hope for the best, like come to Basecamp, connect your units. You could have four townhomes in a row and you guys all come together for a meal and then you go over there to your respective bedrooms. I really think it's like the best thing ever. So <laughs> if I may say so. It's not a lot of people do it. And I think it's it's amazing. And just look at villas at luxury resorts. It's basically the same thing. How do you think about the numbers? So like, you know, I don't know what your threshold is for hotel size nowadays. Let's say it's 60 rooms. How do you, what's the equivalent two to three bedroom setup, converting it to like a one bedroom hotel? Is it like the same? Is it less? Do you get economies of scale? Do you not? How does that work? You get economies of scale, let's say after like 60 suites, which would be the equivalent of 100 rooms, which is kind of the same thing you see in a standard hotel. You get over 100 rooms, you can start seeing, you know, more notable economies of scale. So it's very similar. If we at our at the beginning, our properties that only have 32 units, the fixed costs were just so high compared to a, a project that's, you know, 100 plus units. And so in the places that we have these smaller properties, we have a GM who's actually responsible for, you know, three or four of them. And now we're going into, you know, 100 to 150 suites, which is, you know, 150 to 200 rooms. Then we have, you know, GM supervisors, all of that for that property. So we're evolving to the the larger properties. It just works better economically. Have you explored alternative lodging like tents or Airstream trailers? Because a lot of your properties have some acreage where you can add these things seasonally or permanently, but they might not count for your developable square footage. What have you done in terms of those types of things? Yeah, we actually acquired a property at the beginning of this year called Sundance, which is now Sundance by Basecamp. And it's a series of anywhere from a teepee to a tent site, camper site. And then we have a few higher end yurt kind of things. It's great. I love it. It's new. So I'm not, again, I'm not the expert, but we did all of our due diligence. It's a great property and there's opportunity to grow and add domes or add cabins. So we're exploring that. And we're also exploring what we can do at our existing properties as well. 
I want to talk a little bit about like challenges and failures. What's the worst deal you've done? Ah, worst. So there's one deal we're in right now. It's in a place called Harvey Heights, which is just outside Canmore. We bought a piece of land and actually condominiumized and sold 54 townhouse units, but to buyers. They are zoned vacation. So these people are then buying the condos and Airbnb them themselves. It has nothing to do with base camp. It's just kind of a one of our opportunistic deals, so to speak. And it's just been a, a terrible deal. And it, it's not really like we missed something or didn't do something. It was just we bought this piece of land. The municipality was brutal. The residents opposed us. We had to go through an SDAB hearing, which is Subdivision subdivision Development Appeal Board. It cost a fortune. They got a lawyer. We had to get a lawyer to fight. We ended up winning. We got our permits. We started construction. Every construction cost went up. They were more expensive. We had to have pre-sales to get our loan. So now our margins are like way skinnier than they were supposed to be. It's just one thing and then the other and then the other and then the other. And then there was a shoring wall on our drawings that ended up being three times bigger than it was supposed to be. So instead of 300 grand, it was a million and on and on and on it went. So it was just a bad deal. And it's funny because this goes back to the gut intuition. When we bought the piece of land for whatever it was, I can't remember, we got a, an offer to purchase it, I think like six months later for $2 million more than we paid. And I was like, let's just sell it. Like, let's sell it. Let's sell it. And then of course, everyone's like, yeah, but if you do the deal, you make way more than $2 million. I said, I don't care. Let's sell it. And I got outvoted, which there's no official vote. We're not a board. I was, it was just like the construction VP and a couple other people. So I was like, fine, let's do the deal. And now it's like, oh man, it would have been so much better to sell it, which there was no grounds. Like there was at that time there was, we didn't know this was all going to happen. So that's like, yeah, pretty unfortunate situation. Nobody's like, and I, and I shouldn't be so like about it. Like we're still, everyone's still making a bit of money. So it's not like a total dud. It's just, we could have put our time elsewhere. How would you advise people who are looking to create a career path like you have with these really cool experiential hotels starting from nothing? How, how would you advise that they start? Would it be your same path? Would it be something different? What would you say? Yeah, I'd say the same path because I don't know any different, right? Like I would say just go do it. But a lot of things have to line up or you have to make them line up. Like they didn't line up for me. I didn't have like rich parents who cut me checks and all these things that some people have. Like I had to like find the money. I had to do it. I had to chase it. I had to find sites. I had to, you know, at the beginning I did everything. I was the GC. I ran the the, the trades and my husband at the time who was my boyfriend was running them on site and I was the project manager and I was doing QuickBooks and I was doing accounting. I had to do everything. I don't recommend it. I think everyone should just get a job. <laughs> like it's just so painful well, that didn't work out for you um yeah yeah no i didn't get a job did work but i don't know i think there's no right or wrong path there's no there's nothing i can say that's like do this do this people always ask me that like how how should i start the business i don't know just go do it and and if it doesn't work when you try this then try that and if that doesn't work then try that and just keep going because nobody can predict all of the different things that could potentially happen. They're just going to happen and then you have to deal with them. So I really think to, to, for someone to be successful, they just have to be able to deal with things. How have you thought about culture in your company? Because now you're at a point where it's not just you and you have to have all these people and they have to be happy working with you and you have to rely on them. How have you built a culture in your company? Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah, like I said at the beginning when it was just me and then I hired a few people, I was very much like, listen, I don't have time to manage you. Like, go deal with yourself and shut up and come back with some results. You know, all in good humor. Like right now, it wasn't like I was yelling at them. And so I found I was really lucky to find a few key people who I call them entrepreneurs in the job. So they're very entrepreneurial, but they would never really want to go out and like risk their house and their entire life or, or or they never did right whether they wanted to I actually never asked them that but they're there and they're running their business units and they're successful at that so one of the people that I hired almost right at the beginning is very culture driven so I have to say that together we you know devise what we want for a company culture how do we want people to be and I always just said I just want people to be happy right so figure out what it is that makes someone tick do they want more money do they want more holidays do they want this do they want that do they want cookies Friday mornings like I don't know figure out like like ask people right so it's not just about me dictating and saying like you must like cookies it's like okay what does everybody want what makes you happy and you can't make everyone happy with the same ingredients. It's impossible. So we try to really find out what what matters to people and and to do those things. And then, of course, to have social events, to have parties and and equally important to be philanthropic, to give back to the communities that we're in, to volunteer for events where we can, to encourage people to volunteer and to be part of the communities. So, yeah. It's an amazing insight. Because I think a lot of companies try and standardize things like this is our vacation policy. This is how much we pay this level. This is, you know, how we do things here. Personalizing it, though, is unique. I've never really we've done it, but I've never really heard it said in that way. Well, when you're new, you can kind of like we only opened our, our first hotel in 2017. Right. So it's not like we've been around forever and ever. And we have all these programs and all these documents and all these policies and all these things. So we just have to wing it. Same as like the, my story earlier about the 250 grand. Okay, we'll buy a hotel. Like, here you go. We don't have systems and policies for every single thing yet. So it allows us to have more flexibility and it allows me to be like, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. Of course, as we grow, to your point, we need to have, you know, a culture that's you know, a little more manageable than, hey, Sky decided you should have an extra week off because she felt like it. Like, that doesn't work anymore. You can't do that. So we are, you know, streamlining things and all of that. But at the end of the day, all I want is for people to want to come to work and not to just be like, oh, I got to go there again. So, yeah. Sky, I ask all the guests on the podcast the same closing question, and that is outside of your own portfolio, what is your favorite hotel? Yeah, I don't really have one. I don't go anywhere. I have two kids and a business. But when I do go to Calgary, I do go to this place called the Dorian, which is really cute and really nice. And um, I actually know the lady who owns it and she's great. So I'll say that for now because it's the first thing that comes to mind because it's the most often like it's the place that I go the most often for work. But I think if I were to go somewhere, you know, exotic, I've seen a lot of hotels that I would love to go to. And the fa- my favorite one on social media to look at is the montage. So they do great social media pictures that make me want to go there. I just haven't been yet. Two-year-old and a four-year-old keeps me busy. Yeah. It, you know, it's interesting. They have montage and Pendry, and they've built a very well-known luxury brand in, you know, a very quick, you know, it hasn't taken them as long as Four Seasons. They're certainly not at that level, but it's amazing to see their growth. So we'll have to check out the Dorian. Yeah, it's great. It's like, it's just, Calgary's kind of a bit of a dud as far as hotels. So someone finally did something a bit different. Thanks for coming on the podcast. This was a lot of fun. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Thank you.